You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was preaching, teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and left her, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he went preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to now, now into your presence. Uh, you are a good and holy and righteous God, and it is by your Son, Jesus, that we come now confidently uh, to sit under your word, to be ushered into the throne room of grace, not here in this building, but with confidence now in all of our lives to know the Christ the Son of God, by the power of your Spirit. So we pray that you would do that, that you would make us more and more into his image uh, by knowing him more clearly today through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is both a lower elementary and a torch night. So if you are a Uh, If you've already checked in with a sticker for a lower elementary, or if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to head out and talk about this wonderful Jesus with your friends and teachers, you can do that now. Well, it's good to see you all this week, everyone. Uh, We spent yesterday skiing up at Pajarito. It was wonderful. Hey, guys, let's go! Get out of here! But it's good to be back with you all this evening. Uh, Last week, Marcy showed me a video of this lady coming home uh, to see her her husky who had destroyed like everything in the house, her dog. And uh, this dog, she's like saying, what have you done videoing this dog? And this dog is just like howling over her, like won't let this woman speak to her in correction. And then the next day, 
I came home uh, to my backyard to find our four-month puppy who had pulled up the corner of the turf in our backyard and dug a gigantic hole underneath it. Uh, Ruined was now the immaculately level uh, dirt and crushed rock underneath. And I was just like, what have you done to this dog? And she was like slinking away. She knew that she had done something terrible. And so with a puppy, you find yourself correcting them, rebuking them all day, not too different than toddlers in that sense. Uh, And while each dog and each child, and even we as adults are different when we receive rebukes, our first response might be, uh, if it isn't to get defensive, is to just slink out of there, to get away from the thing that is making us uncomfortable, to remove ourselves from the situation. Uh, Like, nope, don't like this one bit, just get out of there. Well, this section here that you've just heard Danny read is all about rebukes, rebukes from Jesus in this second half of chapter four. And then I didn't have Danny read the beginning section of chapter five, but we're actually going to get through verse 11 in chapter five today because all of this fits very neatly in one section. Rebukes from Jesus given to others in chapter four, and then a rebuke of Jesus or against Jesus in this first uh, section of chapter Five. And so the responses, though, maybe unexpectedly, are quite different. We're going to work through this section today in two halves. The second half of chapter four, and thinking about rebuked away from Jesus, and then the first half of, or the first 11 verses of chapter five, of then being invited in with Jesus. And so, first of all, rebuked away from Jesus, what we just heard Danny read. Last week, we saw Jesus stand up in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. And Jesus stood up and read from Isaiah 61. And he was saying that a regathering of God's people out of exile is now happening in him. He will be the suffering servant of Isaiah. He will be the messianic king of Isaiah. He will remove the judgment of God and he will bring healing. He will bring sight. He will gather up God's people into his presence. And the people there in the synagogue in Nazareth were like, yeah, that sounds great. But wait a minute. We knew you when you were a kid. Why don't you go ahead then and just prove all of that right here, right now? And he said, yep, could have seen that coming. This is the way it's always been. Those who should know and receive the word of God end up rejecting it, and they get real angry, and they try to kill him. But he gets away from the mob, and he moves on. And he moves on now to nearby Capernaum, which was bigger than the tiny Nazareth where he just was, his hometown. But still, Capernaum is a relatively small village, maybe about 1,500 people or so in that time a fishing village right on the Sea of Galilee. And he starts teaching again on the Sabbath in another synagogue. In verse 32, tells us that they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In other words, unlike other rabbis or teachers who merely repeated or rehashed the traditional teaching of a given Old Testament text, Jesus is teaching new stuff. Or maybe better, he's actually teaching old stuff. He's teaching and interpreting the scriptures in the way that they were meant to be understood. In fact, as we saw last week, he's actually teaching the Old Testament as if it's his autobiography. And so this word here in chapter 4, this word of authority, of his word possessing authority, is like the fountainhead from which the rest of the text flows. Jesus, the prophet of God, has authority. But authority over what? What kind of authority? Is it just his authority and his ability to understand the Bible? Well, no, verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
And the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. All right, so demon possession is going to come up two more times with big stories in Luke, in chapters 8 and 9. So I'm not going to say everything that we'll say about this, but this isn't just that ancient people didn't understand the world the way it really is. We might, as moderns, read a text like this and say they didn't understand mental health. Uh, These ancient people didn't understand personality disorders or schizophrenia or whatever may have actually and really been happening with this man. And since they didn't understand, they just said it was a demon. It's in some invisible or evil spiritual being. But not only does that kind of understanding of a text like this ignore the very real stories of different places in the world today, and not necessarily out of some like superstitious or uneducated third world part of the world, which is a very arrogant uh, position for some to take today, but stories coming out of very credible and uh, sources and witnesses. I personally have never seen anything like this, but some of you have. I've had conversations with you about situations very similar to what we've just read. But also, in saying that this is just ancient people who didn't understand personality disorders or something, uh, that ignores the very stories as they're presented. This man, apparently, through demon possession, very clearly and clearly identifies and addresses Jesus. This is not schizophrenia. We're in Luke 8, when Jesus exercises demons and they rush into the pigs who then run off a cliff. That is not some person Uh, struggling through a personality disorder or a mental health episode. So it's clear here that Luke understands that there actually is an invisible, unseen spiritual world with real influence and with real power. Now, we talked about this in Ephesians 6 with the whole text of the whole armor of God, and that when we come to texts like these, we often come away with not, under, not understand or understandable curiosities, but actually coming to these texts with those curiosities leading our questions. We want to know everything about demon possession. What does it mean? What does the actual power, what is it actually able to do and not able to do? Can Christians be possessed? And on and on and on. Decent questions, but not ones that the Bible is necessarily trying to answer. But we also thought about in Ephesians 6 that the reason Paul is writing about the powers and the authorities uh, is in the first place is that he's actually concerned that those powers and authorities will keep ordinary Christians away from leading faithful lives, just ethical lives, that there are powers out there, but that they are defeated powers, they are subjected powers, that the powers do not deserve attention, they deserve avoidance. And so we'll swing back around to the demonic realm and even more on possession in chapters 8 and 9. But for now, what is the reason? If those questions aren't the reason that Luke includes this story, what is the reason that Luke includes this story? I think there's actually two reasons. One is that while the people surrounding Jesus are curious, some are even really impressed by Jesus. The demonic realm is the one who first sees Jesus very clearly for who he is. He is the Holy One of God the set-apart one, the perfect and righteous one, the morally perfect and completely sinless one, this little hot spot of God's presence now in and amongst this world of darkness, this world of sin and rebellion. But we, we who often do not have eyes to see, we can completely miss this. We can not see as clearly as the demonic realm. And so an immediate application for all of us is to respond like this. 
to respond like this demon-possessed man. Do not respond to Jesus in a lesser way than the demonic realm responds to Jesus. When confronted with the person of Jesus, with the reality of Jesus, maybe even for the first time today, respond with, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Understand and see him rightly, but don't stop there. James 2 says that even the demons believe in the holiness of God, and they shudder. They respond rightly in the fear of God because they understand and see clearly for who God is. But that is not a saving, transforming faith. It's one thing to recognize and see clearly who Jesus is, who God is, but that is not where we can stop. We must go further. And so the second reason that Luke includes this little vignette is to show Jesus' authority. This is what we've been asking of the text. What kind of authority does Jesus have? The demon, through this possessed man, asks, have you come to destroy us? Implying that if you want to get to me, me the demon, you're going to have to destroy the man first. You'll have to destroy both of us if you actually want to get to me. But Jesus does not walk into this situation like some sort of hostage negotiation, like really concerned for the well-being and the health of this man. He essentially just says, that's enough. There's no bargaining here. Verse 35, he rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And like a weak weak and like slinking away little puppy, after the demon throws the man down into verse 35, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Having done him no harm, so much for the, like, if you want to get to me, you're going to have to destroy both of us kind of thing that the demon was saying. This is real authority. This dark cloud of the unholy, the rebellious, the unclean is rebuked and then sent away from the presence of the Holy One of God. Again, there are powers out there, but they are subjected powers. They are ultimately weak and defeated powers. And so this, in seeing this kind of authority, this is the response of the people. Verse 36, and they were all amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They were impressed with his teaching authority, but now this. Who is this? What is this? Two minutes ago, like this man was causing a scene. He was scary. This is really scary stuff. We have no idea what to do with it. And now, with a word, Jesus has just restored this man to himself. He has sent away and rebuked the unclean, the vile, the wicked. And so the reports, like a slow-moving wildfire, begin to go out about Jesus. His reputation is growing, but he's not done. Verse 38, the same day, and he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. So the people had come and asked Jesus to help for Simon, who will later come to know as Peter, Simon Peter. And here we find Simon, or Peter, Simon Peter's wife, his wife's mother, his mother-in-law, is sick with a high fever. And they're very worried for her life. And so Jesus walks in, and in a scene that is almost exactly like the one we just saw about the demon-possessed man, verse 39, he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and the fever left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now this is like the last scene, and it's not like the last scene. There's nothing here to suggest that the fever has come about because of some demonic spiritual power or something. Simon's mother-in-law is sick because she lives in a fallen Genesis 3 world of sickness and of death. 
every single one of us will die of something. Some younger, some older. But sickness in and of itself is not demonically evil. It is unnatural in the sense that God did not create sickness and death in a world that was very good. But now on this side of Adam, it is natural, meaning it is like baked into the fabric of nature in a world that groans, in creation that groans in birthing pains. So this scene is different. There maybe or maybe not isn't something demonically evil here, but this scene is actually the same. Because again, Jesus rebukes something and it leaves. He rebukes the fever. Now, rebukes was a understandable word for what he might do to a demon, right? Like a puppy, a puppy or a toddler. Uh, Jesus authoritatively corrects and sends away a demon. But have you thought about this? It's a weird word. Fevers don't have ears. Sicknesses don't have minds to receive, to process, to consider the authority of Jesus and then respond to. And yet this fever does respond to Jesus and like the demon departs. Verse 39, he stood over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. No, like, week of recovery needed. She just pops up and starts serving dinner. She's immediately restored right away to the way that she was before. Again, this hot spot of holiness is transforming the fallen world around him. And again, Luke is highlighting Jesus' authority as a teacher and a prophet, as one who has power over the world of spirits and the world of sickness. He rebukes that which is not in the Genesis 1-2 created good. And in response, the broken, the fallen, the wicked, the even sickness, all of these things depart from him. But Luke keeps the narrative moving because Jesus keeps moving. All of this is then still happening on the same day. Verse 40, and when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. Now we'll have much more to say about demons, and we'll also have plenty more to consider even next week about healing. But in comparison to many modern-day so-called healers, Jesus doesn't sell tickets. He doesn't charge admission. He isn't selling, like, Jesus is my homeboy merch at the table. None of this is self-promotion. He is merely fulfilling Isaiah 61, the Old Testament as his autobiography. He is the one taking the reproach of the people onto himself. He is the one regathering God's people into God's presence. And so maybe you've heard a similar criticism of modern-day healers, but if modern-day healers, many of them, most of them, were really about compassion and about the glory of God, have you ever wondered why those so-called healers don't just go into every hospital? Just moving from hospital to hospital to hospital, just cleaning out all of the disease and the sickness and the death but I guess you can't sell tickets at the hospital. But Jesus really is about that, is about restoring order, about compassion, about the glory of God. And then Luke just keeps it going. He's rebuking more demons. Verse 41, and demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Like we'll see him do again next week. Jesus here charges the demons to keep quiet about him. This primarily has to do with the kind of Messiah that people might 
come to expect if this kind of word of power starts to spread too quickly. And the timing of Jesus' mission actually must end three years from now on Passover in Jerusalem. Jesus has a very clear timeline for where the providence of God is taking all of this. And he's saying, keep quiet for now. But again, Luke is highlighting Jesus' place of authority over those demons. His power and authority to rebuke them. There is no negotiating going on. There is no back and forth, no compromise. They will listen to him because he is the Son of God. And he holds the universe together by the word of his power. If this person, the God-man, holds everything, the universe, together by the word of his power, if he holds the laws of physics, like gravity is 9.8 meters per second, things fall always and forever because he says so and he maintains it. If he holds the moon in orbit around the earth, then he certainly has the authority to command sniveling demons and invasive bacteria. Now to us, the creation, the created ones, these things might seem threatening. They do seem threatening. They are threatening. The demonic spiritual powers invasive sickness and death. But to him, the creator, those things seem silly. Not like laughable, but just, of course, they just obey him at his word. And yet, like we considered last week from Isaiah 61, Jesus' healing of the sick actually isn't his mission. He is compassionate, yes, but sickness, oppression, blindness, whatever the malady, is actually symbolic for greater sickness for greater oppression, of spiritual sickness and oppression that leads to eternal death. And so he doesn't just go from hospital to hospital either. The sick keep coming to him, but he actually then moves on from them. That's a weird thing, right? We would never think in our minds and understanding of Jesus that he would actually say no and move away from sick and hurting people. But we see an implied rebuke even here from him the next morning, beginning in verse 42. And when it was day... He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The purpose of his mission is not about bringing physical relief to anyone and everyone that he might be able to come into contact with and to touch. The purpose of his mission is to bring about spiritual liberation. Jesus' ministry is primarily a preaching ministry to preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Healing is symbolic and points to the kind of preaching that he's doing. It goes hand in hand, but his ministry is not primarily a healing ministry. He's got to keep moving. He's got to keep going on. He's got to keep preaching. So to summarize here, we saw a rebuke of a demon and the demon departed. We saw a rebuke of a fever and the fever departed. And then in this patient rebuke of the sick people who are coming to him, he actually rebukes them and departs from them. His ministry needs to expand and then even begin to transform. And so now we'll move from rebuked away from Jesus to now, secondly, in these first 11 verses of chapter 5, to being invited in with Jesus. I'm not going to read this entire section, but we're going to work our way slowly through it. So here we are in verse 1 of chapter 5. 
on the shores of Lake Gennesaret, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. If you see any of those three names, it's all the same thing, the largest freshwater lake in Israel, way up in the north. And again, again, there are large crowds pressing in on Jesus. And why wouldn't there be? Remember, his reputation has been spreading like wildfire. And when the curious come upon him, they then are undoubtedly drawn in even more by his authority and his teaching. And so Jesus sees two fishing boats, which one belongs to, now the second time we've seen this guy, Simon. And Jesus asks Simon to take him a little bit away from the beach so that he can be seen and heard by more people rather than be enclosed by like a little semicircle of people on the beach. And he goes out and he preaches from this fishing boat, as it's been said, transforming the boat into a pulpit. And he throws out the net of the gospel from this fishing boat. And then we read this in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep and let out your nets for a catch. It's like he just told Simon, hey, Simon, catch some fish. And maybe Simon had his back turned to Jesus when he was like, hey, Simon, catch some fish. And Simon's like, he made this little cringe face and he's like, um, in verse 5, my paraphrase, he basically says, uh, Jesus, like, we did that all night last night and nothing. And not only that, it's daytime, dude, which is the wrong time to fish in this lake. Now, seriously, though, pretend you are Simon. You are a professional fisherman. This is your everyday job, just like it probably was your father's job and your grandfather's job and your great-grandfather's job. This is, there is likely a treasure trove of generational wisdom in Simon when it comes to fishing. If this was the time to fish, Simon would know it. He would absolutely know when to fish and where to fish. And now, here's a guy in his boat who's a really good teacher. He's even showed himself to be a man of great spiritual power, but let's be honest. Uh, he grew up the son of a carpenter. So Jesus might be really good at making tables, but he now has even quit that job. So who knows? Maybe or maybe, he, maybe not. I don't know. Now he's just a man of ideas. This would seriously be like if I went over to Eric Layer's house while he's building intricate bookshelves or cutting crown molding for the top of his walls or something, and I'm going to say, hey man, listen here, this is what you're going to want to do. And then Eric makes the same cringe face, like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Or if I ask JJ to come over to my house to help me like change the transmission, and I like kick the tires, and I say, have you checked those? Or, um, I think it's the radiator. He was like, what are you talking? Like, He's the expert. I'm not the expert here. But of course, the difference is, is that Jesus actually is the expert on fishing also. He is a better fisherman than Simon because, again, if Jesus, this God-man, can tell the comets where to go, then he can tell a few hundred tilapia where to go. And yet Simon does not know that yet. And so he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Yes, Jesus, we can do that. And wouldn't you know it, almost immediately the nets are so full that they are breaking. Simon calls his work buddies who had the other boat, James and John, and they either put up their, sa their sail or they start paddling out like crazy to get out there, and they start also pulling in just as much. Their boats are now close to sinking. And as all of this 
is going down. This flopping, slimy craziness is happening all around him. Simon falls down before Jesus and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord, O master. This is a weird thing to say. If you grew up in the church, you know that this is, the, this is Simon's response. You know that this is where this is going. But pretend you are reading this for the very first time. Maybe some of you are hearing this story tonight for the very first time. That's a weird thing to say. I think we might expect him to respond like Aladdin after he just got his first wish. Which I think in the cartoon, Aladdin is like the, his first wish, wish is to make the genie to make him a prince. And so here's Aladdin with elephants and soldiers everywhere. There are fancy clothes and a whole parade. This is awesome. And so we might expect Simon to say something like to Jesus, this is the single greatest catch not only that I have ever had in my life, this is the single greatest catch that I have ever heard of. What can we do to get you to like buy into our outfit? What do you want out of this? 50-50? No, we'll give you 60-40. 70-30? No, before you say anything, we'll give you 80-20. Just don't ever leave us. You're amazing. And yet Simon's response is none of that. He responds similarly, but differently from the demon in chapter 4. Like the demon who saw clearly that Jesus was the Holy One of God, Simon's vision of Jesus just got focused, just got a bit more clear over the past week. Simon has gone through a series of vision adjustments. If he was there in Capernaum, the optometrist had Simon there, and he's like, number one or number two? Number one or number two? And if Simon saw what happened with the demon-possessed man, he's like, oh, number two. This guy is more than just an authoritative teacher. And when he saw what Jesus did with his mother-in-law, it got clearer. Number one or number, oh, number two, that one's clearer. He even has authority over sickness, over potential death. And here it gets even clearer. Number one, number two, number two, that one is clear. What in the world? This guy, he even, even has authority over fish and over creation. I'm not sure who this guy is, but I know that I have no business being in this person's presence. Simon is having an Isaiah 6 moment here. Remember when Isaiah is taken into the throne room of heaven, where he is now in the holiness of God, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Simon here, also confronted with a being so utterly unlike him, so righteous, so good, so pure, and so powerful, he is not tempted to treat Jesus to act with Jesus, to react to Jesus, to use Jesus like a genie, but to become immediately aware now of his unworthiness. This kind of response is exactly what John Calvin had in mind when he began chapter one of his institutes. When he says this, Calvin says, it is evident that man never attains to true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated, contemplated the face of God. You do not know yourself until you see God, until you know God. For such is our innate pride. We always seem to ourselves as just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. We will never be convinced if we look only to ourselves and not to the Lord also. 
he being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be, be produced. In other words, again, the only path, the only door to true self-knowledge is to know God. Simon is figuring out that slowly but surely. But did you see what he said? He actually rebuked Jesus. He told him to go away, leave, get off my boat, depart from me. He says this in humility. He knows that he doesn't deserve to be in Jesus' presence, but he rebukes him nonetheless. Like, what did he want him to do? Jesus, dive off my boat and swim to shore. Get out. Leave. But does Jesus depart? Does he leave? Or does Jesus turn around and respond like he did with the demons in the fever for Simon to depart, to leave? No, he tells him in verse 10, Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. He invites him into his mission. He says, join me. Simon apparently thought that God would only use the holy, only use the righteous, only use the perfectly pious. Instead, not knowing that Jesus' only prerequisite to be invited into his work, to be invited into his kingdom, was it an admission of frailty, an admission of weakness, of sin. And this admission from Simon brings immediate grace, brings immediate welcome, brings immediate belonging. Like we've seen throughout Luke, humility from Simon, as one commentator says, becomes the elevator for spiritual greatness. Humility, going lower and lower and lower, becomes the elevator for greatness. To know God, to be elevated with Jesus, because it is Jesus that brings the change in Simon, as we'll slowly see throughout the rest of this gospel. But what is Jesus' mission? What is he inviting Simon into. Remember, it is a preaching ministry. Just as we see Simon, James, and John drop their nets and follow him, the day of the single greatest vocation, or their their, uh, fishing vocation, can you imagine? The single greatest fishing day they've ever had. They maybe don't even sell their fish. They just drop their nets. They follow him. They are willing to drop all that was important to them to follow and to be with Jesus. And so now Jesus tells them that that is what their mission and ministry is as well, to invite others to know Jesus. Now, can I offer a really practical tool? This Luke Volume 1, this is in the Read, Mark, Learn series. Uh, It's written by William Taylor. This could be a wonderful tool for you. Uh, If you uh, have a friend, a coworker, a neighbor... You could just ask them, hey, at my church, we're learning a lot about Jesus through this book of Luke. I've got this really cool book. Uh, It kind of helps explain, would you want to read the gospel of Luke with me? And then maybe read through a book explaining what we're reading. I think it could be helpful. There's uh, lots of helpful review and application questions at the end of each chapter. You can just search for Luke William Taylor, and you'll find volume one on Amazon for like 11 bucks. What an investment for eternity that you could make in someone's life, to go fishing so that others might and follow Jesus. But here's the thing. This kind of text gets used all the time to prompt us toward evangelism, and it should. This kind of 
preaching ministry, proclamation ministry, Jesus inviting others into that proclamation ministry absolutely should come to us as needed encouragement, as needed conviction to be sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors and coworkers, to be inviting them into the life of Jesus, to be inviting them into following Jesus. But remember, the Old Testament is Jesus's autobiography as he is regathering God's people into God's presence. So last week, we saw him make a clear quoted reference to Isaiah 61. Well, through another prophet, Jeremiah, God described how the people would all be scattered. There was a scattered people all over the land, but how one day God would regather them, restore them. And in Jeremiah 16, 16, we read this. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. In case that's a little unclear, he's not talking about catching fish. God is talking about these fishers. I will send for many fishers, and they will go out to regather and to lead the people out of this exile. They're scattered everywhere. God will send out fishers to gather the people out into a new exodus to bring them out of their exile, to bring them into the settled place and land of God. So we tend to read a text like this in the gospel accounts and say, oh man, fishers of men, Jesus, awesome illustration, super cool metaphor, that is very deep. I do need to share the gospel with my friends, and this helps me understand what's going on. And that's true. We do need to share the gospel with our friends. There are people dying, separated from the knowledge of God, separating from a save, separated from a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus who loves them, and they must know. How will they know if we do not proclaim and preach? Yes. But it wasn't necessarily a call to evangelize that caused Simon and James and John to give up everything. It wasn't a call to evangelism that caused them to want to drop everything and follow Jesus. If they knew the book of Jeremiah, and they likely did, they would have thought, whoa, did he? I, th I think he just said that. Did he just say that he was going to make us into the fishers that Jeremiah promised? One day, God would call out many fishers, and he would send them out to a people, an exiled people, to reconstitute and reform the people of God? I think he said that. All right. God is on the move, finally, after so many centuries, and we must be part of it. And they dropped their nets and followed him. Do we have the same urgency? What is preventing us from knowing and following Jesus? What needs to die in our life in order that we might know his life? There is plenty in our lives, plenty that actually needs rebuke, that needs correction, but the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that he sends sin away in departure, but he does not send the person. He does not send his people in patience, in love, and in grace. Now just think about Peter's coming story. There are so many false starts in Peter's life. There are so many speed bumps. There are some, so many unbelievable face plants in his life, and yet Jesus is forming him slowly, patiently. He's forming his people to be a proclaiming people. He is forming his people to be a people of his character, of patience, 
of love, of grace. So a question for us as we see this whole section here together is that do we see Jesus clearly as the demonic realm sees Jesus, as Simon saw Jesus? And in response to seeing him clearly, do we see ourselves clearly? Now, he sees us clearly, which sounds terrifying. But it is actually good news that he knows you better than you know yourself with all of the selfishness in your life, with all of the impurity in your heart, with all of the fear and the anxiety and the weakness, the rebellion. He says to you, come, join me. Don't leave me. Come, join me, and I will use you. As we'll see next week, he will say to you, I will forgive you. I will heal you. I will love you. So come to him tonight for the first time or for the the 10,000th time. Leave everything. That doesn't necessarily mean, if we read a text like this, we might say, oh, They quit their jobs and they just became disciples of Jesus. We have to be something really serious in like Jesus's ministry. We should not read a text like this and come to the conclusion that I need to quit my job and like go to seminary and become a missionary or a pastor or something. Maybe. For some, not most. But the question is, in their lives, here in this moment, if they kept fishing, would they be with Jesus? No. What needs to be dropped in our lives that we might be with Jesus, that we might know him more closely and more intimately, that we might know and be with Jesus. He is worth it. To not be sent away from, to be, but to be invited patiently into knowing. Leave everything and know him. There is so much more coming. This story is built on last week. Next week, we'll see in a, another healing of another man with great faith, Jesus inviting in patiently. He's patiently inviting you to know him as well. Let's pray that he might continue to woo us and that we might respond. Lord Jesus, you're so thankful for your patience, for your grace, for your power and your authority. What is your patience and your grace if you have no ability to forgive, if you have no ability to heal? So we come to you as the Lord, the master of all of creation, of the cosmos, of our lives. So we pray that seeing you clearly, help us to see you clearly, and that seeing you clearly, we might see ourselves clearly, our great need, and your ability to heal, to forgive, to redeem, to restore. We pray for those tonight who are struggling through darkness, through oppression, through weakness, through a lack of faith. God, you of the one who can give, who can heal, who can save and redeem. So we pray that by your spirit, through your word, through your people, that you might, Lord Jesus, act today. That you might save and reconstitute, reform a people under your authority. And we pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.